Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. I'm ready. Okay, Rebaria, you ready? I'm mute. Okay, before we start recording, remember tonight, it's an open platform. It's advertised all over. People are coming from all walks of life. So please keep that in mind. Not everybody's 613. And uh, again, we want it to be interactive. We want to gain a lot tonight. Um, so let's keep that in mind. Start recording. Done. Done. Okay, everybody, welcome to our 25th share tonight. Um, this platform, Baruch Hashem, is really growing and we're doing very well. I want to thank all the viewers and all the people that always come every week. Um, Baruch Hashem, we have a tremendous crowd. We're getting a lot of emails and people are posting on their statuses and letting people know about it. And it's big chizik, and we have a lot of a big lineup coming up, a lot of amazing speakers, therapists from all over, and uh, it's going to get a lot more interesting, a lot more interesting topics, and uh, we'll get into that soon. First, I want to thank all the advertising sponsors that help us every week by you know promoting us, the Lakewood Scoop over here, every week pushing us for everybody in Lakewood to uh, grow together. I want to give a special thank you to Rabbi Yanif Chazak. They offer prog- programming for all. I want to give a special thank you this week specifically to Mika Sofer from COL Live. Uh, for pro- promoting us uh, on the website. And again, every week, special thank you to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Sommer from JCN, Jewish, Con- Jewish Contact Network, for always promoting us across all Jewish digital platforms. Uh, just a quick thing, next week, we're going to have an amazing share by Rabbi Moshe Mayor Weiss. I don't know if anybody ever saw Schiffman, but he's, uh, he's a powerful guy. I'm going to be talking about Shalom Bias and some of the crazy things that we're all living through uh, in today's world, which is uh, pretty interesting. Uh, we're going to open up with our host, Coach Menachem. Please open up. So it's very exciting. Welcome back, everyone, to episode number 25. Welcome back to Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem. After last week's show, some Americans felt they got blasted a little bit from Rabbi Elephant Shlita, having a hard time saying no to your kids, living um, a life without perfection. And I was the person who asked them the question, so... It felt like he was talking to me. So I think um, tonight I'm coming, you know, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Weinstein, I'm going to need a little bit of, to build back my self-worth, Hashem. The truth is, tonight's topic, owning the power God invested in you, powerful lessons in self-worth. So before we go to self-worth, we need to understand what is the self. We need some self-awareness before we gain self-worth. How many people have, have never met their self? Who are you, if I ask you? Who, who are you? What do you use to define yourself? Is it uh, the things you do, the job you have, money you have, the amount of money? Does that define who you are, the things, the things you have, the family? If I asked you who you were, what would you answer? So many people define themselves with these things. It's really outside things, things they have, things they do. The problem is that when it, you know, there's always ups and downs. And when there's a down or things doesn't work, then the whole self falls away. Is that really who you are? If somebody has a, a job and loses a job, he's all over. He's, he's all over. He needs a new job but he's still around. He doesn't have to stay in bed. So it's surprising 
that there are people that you may look up at if you think about somebody who you think is successful. And if I ask you, what's your goal? Where, what, who do you want to look like? You'll be surprised to find out that many of those people who look successful are going for professional help because there's something they're lacking. We'll find out if it's self-worth. We'll see tonight a little bit. So at the end of the day, question is, how do you feel about yourself? When all goes to sleep, when everything is done, you finish work, there's nothing else to do, and it's time to go to sleep. It might be at two o'clock in the morning. You might be pushing, uh, trying to do a lot of stuff because you don't want to go to sleep. But that's sometimes when things come out, the inner negative voices, the beliefs, sometimes you don't feel good about, you don't want to hear. And that's really what we're running from, keeping ourselves busy during the day because of those thoughts and beliefs. So that's the question tonight, a little bit, I hope Ray Weinstein will help us with. It's interesting, they did a study that reveals that 95% of people believe they're self-aware, but after asking them many questions, the truth, the truth is that it's only 12 to 15% of those people that are really self-aware. So that means on a good day, about 80% of people are lying about themselves to themselves. And I think we need, you know, you're meeting different type of people. You want to know who you're meeting, if it's yourself or others, to be real. We'll have to make a little campaign to see who wants to become real. So I'm excited to have with us tonight, Rabbi Weinstein, who has done extensive work and I'm almost done his book. I read it fast, but it's not a book that you can read fast. It's work, a lot of work. And uh, I guess we'll share a lot from the book and a mitzvah tomorrow when I send the emails, we'll put a link to his book. So hopefully we'll get some glimpse of what it is and what we're looking for. Thank you very much. Thank you, Coach Manaf, for such a beautiful opening. Really appreciate it. Um, I have to first of all say happy birthday to three of my kids tonight. Otherwise, I'm in big trouble. So happy birthday to Daniel on his birthday. My two daughters, Devorle and Sarbela, on their bas mitzvah. Give me a lot of nachas. I go to sleep. Mazel tov. Thank you. Um, tonight's a very special shear, actually. Um, tonight, it was shear was sponsored by Madway Furniture. Um, the shear is being learned for one of the owners, Lazech Nishma Shneer Zalman, all of the Shalom ben Gimpel Avram Hirsch. He just sniffed it last week. He was a young man, 39 years old, with six beautiful children. Um, I just wanted to speak about him a minute. I knew him very well the last three years. Um, I mean, he was, Shneir was, a, was an amazing person to work for. He was a mamash and ishkadish. He was a tzaddik. He was a real, real erlacha person in the workplace and in his avoida. Uh, we used to learn it together every Thursday. And every Thursday, he made a share with uh, Rabbi Azimov in, in our company. We used to learn together with the company, and he was very into it. He actually watched a few of Ashirim. He texted me in the middle of a Rabashkin share. He was so moved from it. Um, he said, this is such a beautiful Kiddush Hashem that people come on Sunday night, hundreds of people, to spend time to grow and to learn. And he was just amazed by it. And uh, his Neshama should have a big aliyah tonight. And this Chos, Rebbe Weinstein coming, being a Chazak, all these hundreds of people, Mitchum, thousands of people watch the video. His Neshama should have a big aliyah and his family should have nachas. They should have a Nechama from everything. Again, tonight's show is a special show with Rabbi Weinstein. He's a Shliach in Bucks County. He was the keynote speaker in the, by the Kinnis HaShluchim in Chabad. So now I know he could at least, I know he can give a good drasha. Question is, can he do something? Can he handle the crowd? The drush I know he can give. 
You wrote an amazing book. Menachem read it. I read half of it. I'm being honest. I only read the half you, you wrote. The other half I didn't read because I didn't have time. It's co-author. It was an amazing book. It's called It's Within You. Metshem Menachem sends out an email tomorrow. We'll send out the link with the email to buy the book. I advise everybody to buy the book. It was, a, it was such a powerful, clearly written book. Uh, I'm not a big reader, but I actually enjoyed it. Um, Rabbi Weinstein, to give him a little bio. Rabbi Weinstein is, is the Chabad rabbi of Newton Shul in Newton, Pennsylvania. Bucks County, we also direct the J. Michael Schwartz Jewish Learning Academy. He engages teaching style, has made him clinically acclaimed, critically acclaimed, and sought after speaker and podcaster. He is the host of the Beginning Within podcast and has recently published his first book entitled It's Within You. He sought after coach for men desiring to take ownership of, the, the, of, the, the, of their endowed greatness. He resides in Newton with his wife, Rosie, and an integral part of Will's work. And they are proud parents of nine beautiful children. Rabbi Weinstein, the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Ashi. Your energy is just unbelievable every single week. Fantastic. And thank you, Coach Menachem, for... I want to thank both of you genuinely for putting this show together. I think it took a lot of courage for you to do this. And I've listened to countless shows. And I'm sharing this with everyone because if you're new to this show, you should go back to previous shows some of them have been so meaningful and enrich enriching to me. I'm, I'm truly grateful that you put this show together. And it's a great honor for me to actually be on the show and to have a few minutes to talk. So thank you for that. It's also very meaningful to me to be, uh, to be uh, talking tonight um, in the Elili Nishmas, Shner Zalman ben Gimbal Avram, uh, Shner Hirsch, who I knew personally, um, who invested in our community, um, who's a dear friend of my brother, very, very close friend, um, he was such a, an able, an able person, a person who learned constantly, who gave staka without hesitation. Uh, as, he, as he described just a few weeks ago, that you have to give staka until it hurts. He was a really, truly a unique individual. And uh, this, should, this should be a schus for him amongst all of the tremendous things that he's done. And, uh, and the Ebsher should also give chizuk to his, uh, to his wife and children. They should have the strength they need to move forward. So every single person that I know and that I ever met is, has been, is affected by the challenge of self-worth. There isn't a person I know that is not challenged by self-worth. It took me time to discover this because generally speaking, we hide it. People don't share this. We all want to look like we're invincible and we're strong. But when you have real conversations with people, and in the capacity of my role as a rabbi, as a shliach, I have this. Uh, I, I, I have a lot of personal conversations with people. Everyone is challenged by self worth. You'll you, you can meet the most important people in the world when you if you can have an, a heart to heart conversation with them, they will tell you how they feel inadequate, how they feel like they're not the right person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's a reason for this, which I want to get to. But the most important thing is not that we know, because we all do, that we're affected by self-worth, but that we are willing to deal with it, that we're willing to take on this challenge, because part of our Avedis Hashem, part of our mission in this world, which is actually one of the most enriching parts of our mission in this world, is taking on this challenge of our weakness with our self-worth. Because as we do, we can step into our great power. So there are two points I really want to make in these introductory remarks. One point I want to hopefully clarify is the root cause of our 
of the reason why we suffer from self-worth. The root cause. And the reason why I want, I want to clarify the root cause is because when we know the root cause of something, we can actually get to that root cause and start dealing with it. And when we deal with it, we deal with it, we're actually resolving the problem. When we're not dealing with the root cause, we're only dealing with symptoms. It's like putting Band-Aids on. And, and we're not fixing the problem and becomes an endless cycle, which becomes enormously frustrating to the point that we give up. So it's very important for us to simply have in our heads the root cause of why we are all challenged by self-worth, why we all feel to some extent inadequate, very often to a very large extent, which has been uh, you know, my experience for many years. And Baruch Hashem, it's diminishing with time. The other, that's point number one. Point number two that I want to bring out is that the other side of our feelings, our inadequate feelings of self-worth, the other side of that is the power that was endowed by us by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the power that was endowed by us by Almighty God. Meaning that the, as we turn, flip this coin, which has two sides to it, and it's not just an absolute thing, it's a spectrum we move along as we go through life. But as we move further and further along, the further away we get from being challenged by our self-worth, the closer we get and the more we reveal of the unbelievable potential and power that we have. And I believe, and I'm sure many of us experience this also, that as we discover what we are capable of as we go through life, we begin to realize that we haven't even begun to touch what we are in fact capable of, what the ability that HaKadosh Baruch has given us. And these two elements are, are deeply intertwined. They are dependent on each other. These are the two points I'd like to bring out. And I'd like to begin with sharing a story which I shared in my shul with Shabbos about one of the uh, great Rosh Yeshivas from pre, uh, pre-war Europe, um, who um, all of us who have spent time in Yeshiva are quite familiar with Rabbi Lachanan Wasserman, who was Rosh Yeshiva in Branovich, the Yeshiva Oyal Torah. And we know that the, the Jewish communities in Europe pre-war were, for the most part, poverty-stricken. They had very little money. So what does a Rosh Yeshiva do when he needs money? See, he traveled to the Golden of Medina. He traveled to America to raise money. But in America as well, many of the, many of the Yidin who were in America were, they, they were still uh, very poor. Some of them were uh, barely making ends meet themselves. And he came and he raised, he raised, he raised. But at the end of it all, he, he, he wasn't satisfied. He hadn't raised the money that he really needed. And there was one Yid, one Jew who told him, you know, uh, Rabbi Wasserman, it, it might be worth your time. There is a Jew who can really help you substantially. His name is Philip Goldstein. And he, he owns a factory that where they sew coats and suits. He's a very wealthy. If you can somehow convince him to, to your cause, to support your yeshiva, he can really help you out. And so when, when Rabbi Hanan heard this, he said, Philip Goldstein? He says, you mean Fievel? And, and the Jew said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's his name, Fievel. So he says, Fievel is a childhood friend of mine. It's fantastic. That'll open up the door even easier. So Rabbi Hanan went to uh, this Philip Goldstein's uh, factory and he goes to the secretary and he says, I'd like to speak to the boss, to Philip Goldstein. She says one minute, she goes to him and uh, Philip Goldstein tells, uh, uh, the message comes back through the secretary. Uh, Philip Goldstein doesn't have time to come down out to meet you. He's very busy. So he says to the secretary, please go up to him and tell him it's his childhood friend, Elchanan. So she goes back to him and says, your, child, your childhood friend, Elchanan, is the one who wants to see you. He says, what? My childhood friend, Elchanan, he's here in America. 
he comes running down, he hugs him and he kisses him. He was so excited to see him. And he was so excited. He says, come, let me show you. He grabs him by the arm and he starts showing him around the whole factory and everything he built up, his whole empire. You know, he has tens and tens of, of tailors and the coats and the suits that were just coming off the line. And he explains how everything works to him. And he spends an hour giving him a full tour of the factory and he's all excited. And uh, then he turns to Rabbi you know, after, after an hour of his excitement, he, uh, he, he uh, turned to Rabbi and he says, and, and what brings you to America? And what's going on with you? So he says, I have a, you know, I'm a Rosh Yeshiva, I have a head of Yeshiva in Baranovich. Um, you know, and uh, it's a very good Yeshiva. Thank God, everything is wonderful. And he says, what brings you to America? So he says, I'll tell you, um, I have a loose button on my coat. I have a loose button. And I need the button sewn. He says, you need a button sewn on your coat. You came to the right place. And he comes running. He, he pulls him to the, he says, I'm going to take you to my best tailor. Takes me to the best tailor. And he says, replace all of his buttons. Not just the loose button. Replace all of his buttons. A braid kite. You know, he was uh, very generous. So he replaces all of his buttons. And, uh, and, and this uh, Philip uh, Fievel uh, is very excited. Rabbi Khan goes out with buttons like he never had such buttons sewn to his coat before, and he leaves. A couple of hours later, this Philip tracks down where Rabbi Hanan is staying. And he finds out where he's staying, and he goes there, and he knocks on the door, and he says, Rabbi Hanan, you'll have to excuse me. I was so excited when you came, and I was so excited to show you everything I achieved that I, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize, but you told me you came to America to get a, a button sewn to your coat. Is that the reason that you really came? So the guy woke up. <laughs> uh, so Rabbanan, and you hear you see the wisdom of a, of a truly of a real uh, of a really intelligent person. So Rabbanan told him, "Of course, that's not the reason I came to America. I didn't travel all the way from Europe to America to get a button sewn." And he says, "And if I didn't come from Europe to America to get a button sewn, you can be sure." that when God took a soul, a neshama, which is a very piece of God, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an element of infinity. And he decided to take this neshama, this soul, which is infinite, and confine it in the restraints and go through this long journey, which is infinitely longer than from Europe to America, was from, it's coming from God into a finite, delimited, constrained body. And he sent this neshama on this long journey. You can be sure God did not send this soul into this body simply to sew suits and sew coats. He got his message across. The point, and the reason why I'm sharing the story is to bring out that something we all know. We are all comprised of a neshama, a soul, and we're comprised of a body. But I want to bring out the, the characteristics of these two elements that we're, com we're comprised of. Because when we understand these two characteristics, we can begin to understand the reason why embedded within us in the design that God designed for every single one of us that we can feel insecure, we can feel so self-conscious. And this is our nature. It's not surprising. It has to be this way. The question is only what we're going to do about it. You see, our neshama, a soul, it preceded us. Before we were born, our soul existed. It existed because it's a piece of God. It always existed. Um, a, a person passes on, the neshama continues to exist. 
That is the true identity of a person because it is eternal. There is nothing in this universe that's eternal. Everything comes and goes. Nothing has true value except for Almighty God, except for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and our neshama, which is a piece of. And then, and, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu took that soul and he put it into a body. The body is the exact opposite of the, of the soul. The body knows I was born. I wasn't always here. The body knows there's going to be a time when it's going to expire. It won't always be here. It knows it does not have inherent value. And therefore, the body spends the entirety of its life knowing that it's temporary and knowing that it's mortal and knowing that it doesn't have true intrinsic value. It becomes terribly self-conscious and it tries to prove to the world day in and day out that it is valuable, that it is worthy, that it should be respected. And that's the reason why anything that attacks, that attacks the value, questions the value of us, we suddenly become very defensive. We feel like we have to explain ourselves. We have to justify ourselves. We don't even address the issue. We just defend ourselves. We are self-obsessed, where we become so obsessed with ourselves, what we need, what we want. Are people paying attention to me? This is the reason why we, are, we have such inhibitions because we're so scared that we may say or do something that is going to diminish our value in the eyes of other people. So we, so we are left with a choice. And the choice is whether we are going to, you see, when, the, when the, the soul is put into the body, our natural reality is to be physically oriented. That's what we're entrenched in. No one needs an education to learn how to enjoy a good piece of cake. No one needs an education to, under, to, to learn how to enjoy the pleasures of this world. That is our natural state. And we have a choice. Either we stay in that natural state, which is a state of self-consciousness, where our worthiness is always at risk, and we're trying constantly to prove to the world that we are worthy, or we begin to learn, which is not an easy thing to do, but it's actually our purpose in this world. It's a part of our purpose to reveal the divine in the world, to identify more and more with our neshama, with our soul. And as we do that, we discover something fascinating. We discover that our inhibitions, our insecurities, our self-consciousness, our defensiveness slowly starts to fall away. And all of these things which bother all of us, bother us less and less and less. And we become more and more secure because we actually are investing in true, genuine security. So I want to spell this out for just a few minutes to, so, it's, so it's as clear as possible. And I, I use, I'm going to be using the words of getting our self-worth from within or from without. From without is our body. That's our external self. From within is our neshama, our soul, which is our internal self. When we get our self-worth from without, what we are constantly doing is depending on what others think about us, which would mean, this is literally what it would mean. It would mean that if you tell me after this talk that I, sp- I did a great job, I'm going to feel wonderful about myself because I depend on what you think about what I'm doing now. And if you tell me that was a waste of time, I'm going to be, def- I'll be depressed for two days because I am depending on what you think. That is putting our value 
getting our value from outside of us. It means that I look at my job and I look at someone who has a, who's a Harvard graduate and is making $20 million a year. And I look at my job as a rabbi and when I sit next to that person at a dinner, I feel insecure. I'm embarrassed to tell them what I do because I'm concerned of what they're going to think because in society, perhaps my job doesn't garner the level of respect as his job does. My financial worth, even our car that we drive, we will be embarrassed to pull up at a certain event with a certain car because we get our value from without. And I'll go even further because it's very important for all of us. For the 600, as, as Oshi uh, described, the 613ers, um, Halavai 613. Um, when we daven Shman Esrei, and we specifically daven for a long time to make sure that all of my friends know that I daven for a long time. Who is that davening for? Is that davening for HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Is that davening for me? Or actually not even for me, it's for everyone around me. Because I depend on them and I become desperate and therefore I need to constantly serve them, which never ends. That service never ends. And that's why it's an enslavement. It limits our ability to be, when we walk into every situation and we are so self-consumed because we desperately need the approval of everyone around us and everything around us, we cannot possibly give full attention to another person. We walk into a simcha that someone else is celebrating. A chasen is getting married. Someone's getting married that night and we're consumed with what, whether we're dressed properly and what people think about the way we look instead of actually being completely consumed in the simcha of the other person and being able to hug them with a genuine hug. This is how it affects us. And, 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 and all, we also need to understand that it doesn't, it takes away our ability to actually be there for God himself. Because how can I be concerned about what God wants when I'm so concerned about what everyone else is thinking? And therefore I constantly have to uh, satisfy and appease and serve what I believe they want from me, as opposed to uh, uh, what the Ebishter wants, what the Kanj Baruch Hu wants. That is a life of, uh, of, of someone who gets their value from without, and we become arrogant, or we become depressed. We inflate ourselves to make ourselves look greater than we are, or we depress ourselves because we feel so sad and we make ourselves smaller than we are, etc. The option, The other option is getting our value from within. And from within means that we get, we get our value from the fact that I have a piece of almighty God within me. And the fact that I am breathing this moment is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying in this very moment that I have value and he needs me here and he wants me here. And I come to accept, which is not an easy thing to do, but I come to accept that, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves me unconditionally. And he never questions that love, no matter what I do, even when I'm doing something wrong, that love is never questioned. As the Pasuk says, that in our impurity, in our mistakes, in our weaknesses, which is the way he designed us, with a, with a Nefeshah Bahamas, which is with an animal soul and an evil inclination, and he knows we're going to struggle. And with all of that, he, he accepts me and loves me on unconditional means. It's not conditional. It's not conditional on the way I behave. As Rabbi Bachi ibn Pekuda writes in, in Shara Bitochen, to someone who deserves and someone who doesn't deserve. It makes no difference. If we trust that Hashem is the one who provides, 
Hashem will be the one who provides. We don't have to be worthy. That's unconditional love. And when we feel that, we become less self-absorbed. We become more purpose-focused on the purpose we were put here. We're, we become more other-focused. We, we become more HaKadosh Baruch focused we, we become more God-focused. We respond to the events that are going on around us and not to how that event is affecting us. We're all, we're all very frustrated when we're in, a, we're in voting season. We're not going to get political, but we're all very, very frustrated when politicians make biased decisions which are going to serve them. Of course we are, because it's ugly. But are we any better? We do it more subtly. Maybe we hide it better. Maybe we're not exposed public figures, so it's not seen. But what goes into our decision-making? Have we cleared ourselves of being in servitude to everything and everyone around us so that we can actually be clear and respond to the event? The reality is this, that when someone clears themselves, they become a powerful person because the inhibitions are gone. So I can step up. I can speak the truth that I know. I can express the love that I have for another person clearly without myself getting in the way. I can bring my full presence to the world, which is what is expected of me. That's why the Abishter gave me my unique personality and character so that I can bring it to the world. And I say this, I'm speaking on behalf of all of us. We're all, we can all step into our life with power because there is nothing inhibiting us. That's why power is the other side of our lack of unworthiness. So I just want to conclude with this. I also want to say this. I'm going to include with this, these, these points. How do we achieve this? So I'm going to tell you that I, that I give, I have excellent exercises in my book, which spell this out. But I just want to give three quick points on how we can achieve this. Number one is we must be in touch with reality, not our feelings being affected by what's going on, but what is really going on. We have to stop hiding, which I'll hopefully just be able to recap at the end. Um, and that means we have to be self-aware, as Coach Menachem always speaks about, which I really appreciate. We must be self-aware. But self-aware means we have to know what we are really feeling and why we are truly feeling that without the excuses and the blame and justifications that we naturally have. That's number one. Number two is we need to develop perspective. Perspective puts us in touch with what's in, with reality, not our version of reality. And I'll, I'm going to give just two general um, ways that we can do that. One is, we, one is I would strongly recommend everyone study Shah Abitach and the Gate of Trust. You can go to gateoftrust.org. There are many teachers who, um, um, who, who give shiurim on the Gate of Trust. Just listen to them every single day. And I have no doubt that's going to have a significant impact on your life as it had on mine. Um, the other is to learn Pneumius Hatera. Um, whatever that whatever that means to you and whatever that whatever however that fits for you to learn the more spiritual dimensions of the Torah because that's going to help us not only be uh, uh, um, Jews who know how to do Judaism but it's going to help us be Jews who, who learn how to be the expression of everything that we're learning to bring a presence of what Hashem wants from every single one of us into the things that we do and lastly, the third thing I want to say, which is vitally important, is to have a mashpia, a rashishiva, a yedid, a, that means a, a mentor, a teacher, a dear friend, a coach, um, because this is vital. I have a coach. And the reason why I spend money to have a coach is because I, I experience a depth within myself, which I do not experience without the coach. It's an enormous gift. We have to get out of ourselves. 
We must do that. And in doing this, we can actually get in touch with our inner inherent value. And we slowly, it's a process, we slowly diminish our inhibitions and our lack of self-worth. And as we do that, our strength, the power invested within us begins to grow. Weinstein, unbelievable, powerful. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll take a, like a one minute break. We'll take a little poll. Everybody please uh, join us so we could all get a little feel of the crowd. Uh, Menachem got a bunch of questions emailed and uh, we try to put together you know, some solid questions, but we really want people to ask questions. Obviously Rabbi Weinstein opened up with a big topic, a big concept, self-worth and all that. And um, I, I personally have my own questions, so we'll get to that. Let's take a quick poll over here. Okay, question is like this. One being the lowest, 10 being the highest, which number would you reflect? How much of your life is lived from within? Like Rabbi Weinstein says, within, from your, Menachem, how do you explain that within? Explain it better? Soul, soul. From your soul. One, three, five, seven, eight, and 10 are the choices. 10 being the highest. That means you're living, 10 would be like the most from your neshama internally. This one, this one you can't rush. This one, okay, yeah. Okay, think about it. People. Think about it and come back tomorrow and let me know. No, no, you gotta, you gotta know. The second question I actually like better. What area in your life do you feel would benefit from gaining a sense of self-worth? Financial, if I had more money, I'd be worth more. Social, if I had more friends, I'd be worth more. Family, if I had more mishpacha and people to hang with. Or being healthier, I'd have more self-worth. Everybody, please answer. Mavoshi, self-worth doesn't come from these things. Would benefit. It would benefit if I would have self-worth. I wouldn't need to make the million dollars. I'll be happy with a half a million. Okay, okay. Okay, let's see what everybody answers, okay? Five more seconds. Everybody wants to see what's your answers, come on. Ah. <laughs> I can only see yours, everybody else is anonymous. It's, it's not an eight or 10, that my self-worth, but <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I care about one thing, and I stress this all the time. I only care about the direction I'm moving in. If I'm moving in the right direction, I'm happy. And it's very right. important for us to stop judging ourselves, actually, so that's a very important point. Just be happy if you're moving in the right direction. Okay, let's let's end it. Let's share with everybody because nobody was able to see it. Okay, very interesting. The results are the winner is five. So I guess everybody's in the middle of it. They feel like half of them they is you know they're living from within, half without. It makes sense. That's thirty five. So again, so people answer one that they're not living within is five percent. Three is ten percent. Five is thirty five percent. Seven is thirty one percent. Eight is sixteen percent, and ten is three percent. And the second question is. What area in your life do you feel would benefit to gaining, the, gaining a sense of self-worth? Financials, 24%. Social, 40%. Right, once you see that? Yeah, yeah. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Family, 26%. And health, 11%. Just to mention one, I just want to mention one thing because you just said it. I heard, I heard once from somebody said, when you come up to Kodesh Baruch Hu, it's your beginning point and your ending point that's valued. It's not, it's not the where you end off or how much you have. It's what you, you know, did that. They're trying to say always leading, going in the right way, in the right direction. Okay, let's start off with a question. Again, anybody has a question, please text me. Uh, we want to ask live. Rabbi Weinstein wants questions. We want it to be interactive. Yes. Um, we want to really understand the concept on a deeper level. Please, you could ask a question relating to yourself or for a neighbor if you're more comfortable, obviously, whatever makes you more happy. But again, this is a group effort and it's for everybody together. So please feel free to be part of it and enjoy it. I'm going to ask you the first question. Okay, Rabbi Weinstein. How do I know if it's selfish or building my self-worth by saying no to other people? I believe doing for others and living a selfless life is what Hashem wants. Great. It's a fantastic question. Fantastic question. 
Um, so what we have to realize is this, we have to first define what selfish is. And there's a great, there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding about what selfish is. Um, selfish is not defined by whether I'm doing something for myself or not. That doesn't define selfishness. Um, so by saying no to someone, whether I do or don't say no to someone does not mean at all that I'm being selfish. The definition of selfish is when I'm doing something, this, this is the way I define it is this way. It's not about whether I'm doing something for myself. It's whether I'm doing something about myself. And that's the key. It's not whether we're doing something for ourselves. It's whether what we're doing is about ourselves. So the, we must do things for ourselves. And there's no way we can help other people if we are not going to take care of ourselves. So if my life is dedicated to helping other people, then when I am taking care of myself, I am taking care of other people. It is a selfless act. If I'm a self-consumed person who doesn't want to bother with other people, then everything I do for myself is also about myself. So when we're saying no, we simply have to ask ourselves, why are we saying no to the question is why we are saying no. If we're saying no, because we have no interest in helping other people, then we're being selfish. If we're saying no, because we cannot, we have to do something for ourselves now, which is of greater priority, then it's not selfish at all. I, I, I used to, I heard from a friend of mine, Mordechai Weinberg, he always says, every time you say yes, there is a no somewhere else. So you think you can't say no and you're saying yes all day, but you might say yes for people outside, but then it's a no for your family. You might say yes somewhere else, but then it's a no. A no. So realize, even though you can't say no, you want to be selfless and help other people, but you're saying no, even though you're saying yes. So that's, that's absolutely true. And, 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 and as well, we know that generally speaking, if we generalize personalities, you have two types of personalities. You have a chesed personality and a gvura personality. A chesed a personality is a person who is a very giving, giving, giving person. A gvura personality is a person who is a very disciplined, structured person. So a person who is a chesed personality has a very hard time, uh, if they're too, to, you know, if that's very dominant, then they have a hard time setting boundaries. It's very hard for a chesed person to say no. It's much easier for a guru person to say no, but harder for them to say yes. So we have to realize also that sometimes our, our, our inability to say no is not coming from a holy place. It's just coming from our inability to go against our nature when the right thing to do is to say no. Yeah, I'm gonna jump in with a question. Somebody's texting me and uh, I guess you'll, you'll stand from the question why they're not asking it live. Many times low self-esteem comes from thinking that you're the only one. I'm the only person who struggles with X, Y, and Z. My family is the only one with that. Everyone has friends besides me. I'm the only person who can't pull, pull myself, my life together. Basically, when someone feels shame, how should one deal with such feelings? Wow, that's a big question. Great question, great question. So uh, I, I do want to just say a disclaimer that if someone's dealing with a very serious and clinical issue, it's beyond the scope of any of my comments. Okay, but assuming a person is not is not entirely collapsed from what they're what they're what they're dealing with, and they want to know how to deal with it, that, then I have some comments to make. Yeah, Rabbi Weinstein. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to build insurance, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the 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 way the enemy of shame, and I and hopefully I'll have some time to speak about this at the end. The enemy of shame is the is vulnerability is the ability to be able to expose. Shame lives in secrecy. So shame lives in hiding. 
And what we don't realize very often is that we hide to protect ourselves. But as we are, what ends up happening is we actually stop showing up and we create great distance from other people. And the way we diminish the shame that we're so scared of is actually simply by showing up. So I'm going to give a very basic example, which is uh, relatively easy to, uh, for, for us to do. And that is that sometimes when, we are, uh, when, when someone says, why did you do such and such a thing? And we, in fact, did that thing, right? Or they ask us, were you the one? Was this your fault because you did such and such? What we hopefully will learn with time is that the best way to respond to that is, yes, that was me. That simple. Because then we diffuse the entire issue. There may be a moment of shame that we are feeling in that moment. But honesty, as we say, honesty is the greatest policy. Honesty dispels the shame. Once we admit it, there's, there's no buildup. There's nothing that can be built up on that. So likewise, um, the reason why we have a lot of shame and, and I can use many personal examples of things that um, even until today, I am shameful of, but many things that I was shameful of, which I'm much less shameful of, um, we, we have tremendous shame. And then slowly, we, we come forth with it. We're honest about it. Yes, this is who I am. Yes, I'm a person who is flawed. Yes, I struggle with this thing. And we suddenly find something fascinating, that not only are we not ashamed when we expose these things, but because people don't have an issue with that, because generally speaking, most people respect our ability to be open about it. We gain respect in the, in the eyes of other people. However, it's very daunting. It's very fearful. So one thing I would, I would recommend is that in very small baby steps, take those things that we're very fearful of and we're hiding and we think that the world, if the world finds out, who knows what they're going to think about us. And in a very small baby step, expose it to one person you feel most safe exposing it to. And another person, most safe. And I, I have no doubt that with time, you're going to begin to shed this shame and be able to be more of yourself. And the more we are of ourselves, the more powerful we become and the more friends we make and the, and, and the more comfortable it is to get out there. I just want to tell everybody, we're getting a tremendous amount of questions. Obviously, if you ask live, we want live, so they're going to go first. So anybody's texting a question, we'll try to get to it. We're getting a lot of live. If we're comfortable, please ask live so we can get to you. Um, Rabbi Weinstein, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Esti, you're on? Yes. It's all yours. Um, okay, my question is twofold. First of all, um, if as a child, somebody did not get that feeling of being a worthy human being, how can he build himself up as an adult um, if he feels the opposite? And also, um, how can he give over a healthy sense of self to his children when he himself doesn't have that sense of worth himself? That, they are both fantastic questions, Esti. Thank you for those questions. They're both fantastic questions. And I'm, I'm really grateful you asked it because I have no doubt that most of us here are, are thinking those same questions. There are very few people who were gifted with being raised in an environment where they were given unconditional love and have felt fully embraced. Now, the, a lot of this has to do with our personalities. Some of us are more sensitive uh, by nature. Some of us are less. I happen to be a very sensitive person by nature. It's just the way uh, um, God designed, decided to design me. And it took me many years to begin to appreciate the gift of it, um, which is a separate story. But it, it makes the struggle harder. Um, uh, so I want to explain that your, your second question also really leads into the, it, it steps back into the first question. 
Um, the reason why most of us are not raised in an environment where we are, we are can, given what we need to have that assuredness and security is simply because our parents or the people who are raising us were not given it as well. It's a perpetual cycle. Okay, and that's the reason why I'm going to answer your second question first. The only way that we can truly give our children healthy self-worth is if they have parents who have healthy self-worth. That's the only way we can do it. Otherwise, our children feel our insecurity. It comes out in almost everything we say and do. However, we should not feel guilty about that because we all do it. We all do it. It's a matter of extent, but we all do it. We just need to ask ourselves if we're moving in the right direction. And how do we move? Going back to your first question, how do we move in the right direction? So the first thing I want to tell you is um, it, it, it's, um, it's, it's, a commit, it's a lifelong commitment. So we have to commit ourselves to it. We have to say, we have to, number one, know, and I'm here to tell you that you absolutely, we, every single one of us absolutely can increase our self-worth on our own, even though we may not have had it from childhood, which is the case for most people. We can absolutely increase it. And we must take that on because this is at the fiber, at the core, at the foundation of our lives. And how do you do it? So um, a, a number of points I made. Um, I, I really do think that the exercises at the end of each chapter of my book will really give you a very basic way to begin to look within yourself and become more self-aware. Um, I, I think that if you can find someone who is a mentor or a coach who you trust, who you really value, has deep perspective, that they can really move you forward at a, at a much quicker pace. Those are two things that I would uh, say off the bat and stay committed to it. And I'll tell you this also, because I've stayed committed to this path, which is why it led me ultimately to writing a book on it, um, is that at, when we stay committed to a path, doors open up in that direction. Um, Hashem will guide you when you commit to it. So never give up on this commitment and really seek out the people, the conversations. The reason why this, the reason why this program is so valuable is because these conversations keep our minds in this direction. And every single conversation helps us move forward slowly and know that it's a slow process. You know, just like our children, when they grow, we don't notice how, how much they grew from the age of five to the age of eight. But our neighbor or our relative who hasn't seen them walks in and says, wow, we will not realize the little changes that happened. But you will be able to turn around in two years from now and say, wow, you know, I feel much more, much more secure with myself. Wow, I see how I'm responding to things in my life very differently. So I hope that helps a little bit. I just want to jump in that from your opening, it was very clear that living within or without, and like I always mentioned, logically, it sounds very good. And if somebody lives from within, then the without stuff won't really affect um, his decisions and the way of living because he's connected and gets the self-worth from his soul. However, it does take work to get there. That's the ultimate. That's what we're looking for. And the journey to get there is obviously, especially people who struggle, who need to start the journey, they're going to get the, the approval from other people. It's going to come from outside because that's, that's what they're looking for and that's what they need. And that's where they are now. I just want to mention that the only way to grow is before the self-worth 
We need self-acceptance. And if you see yourself in a place where you believe you don't have any self-worth, whatever reason it is, it could be coming from when you grew up, the first thing before you can start growing or reading the book or anything is first be okay with yourself wherever you are now. And that's also a hard piece to just accept because we're, we're very upset and we blame and, and there's so much to do and we don't know where to start and all because of this and because of that, we, we just can't accept where we are. But in order to start the journey, you really have to spend a few minutes with yourself and telling yourself that it's okay and this is where I need to be now. And yes, now I can start. So a lot of self-acceptance. I'm not even going to mention self-love because that's going to take a long time. And uh, hopefully the journey can start from there. Robert Weinstein, I mean, this is, um, this is the question that I think that is going to incorporate all the main questions together. I'm going to ask the way somebody sent it, but I want to I wanna explode it a little bit more. Is that okay? Sure, sure. Okay, somebody wrote a question. It's a personal question. I owned a company, I had large success, and then I lost it all. Now I feel like a complete failure. I'm embarrassed to go on the street. Many people, I meet people I know, is it, isn't, isn't it considered a failure? I have nothing good to feel good about. So again, he's asking specifically on his you know, money, the guy was making a million dollars a year, now he's broke, can't pay his mortgage. But um, I want to add brought into question more than just money, just somebody had a beautiful family and a bunch of kids are not from, somebody got divorced, somebody, you know, any type of very life altering or extremely embarrassing situations. When health. you know, people say again? Health. Health, right? Sometimes person, yeah. uh, I actually know somebody personally that was a very successful and everything. And he went through a very, you know, thing that he had to go in a wheelchair and he had some, you know, bathroom issues. It was a very embarrassing for him. It like, it really brought him down. So the question I'm gonna ask more again, globally, person goes through a tremendous challenge or embarrassing thing. And um, whether we admit it or not, we're all somewhat tully in you know, have a beautiful mishpacha, I'm a rich guy, I'm this, I'm that, and then that gets taken away from you or changes, how do you get yourself worth back? So, that's a, it's a big question, and I'm, I'm going uh, yeah, it's a loaded question. The first thing I'm going to say is, you know, we, we, we generally, um, it's very hard to counsel someone in the middle of crisis. So, uh, the middle of crisis, things are overwhel overwhelming, and what they need more than anything else is someone standing by their side just to survive what they're dealing with. And in this context, although this may not be, um, you're talking about it from the self-worth angle that the person's embarrassed to go outside. I do want to say that hopefully no one's in a crisis here on the, on, on our, uh, on our, on the, on the call tonight. And that, that the value of going down this road now is that you can bring a deeper, healthier self to the situations that come your way. That's the, that's the first thing I just want to say. The second is it, it, it has to be a, it has to be assessed, and assuming that the person himself who who, um, who lost all the money is asking this question, um, I would say that everything that Hakadosh Baruch Hu gives us is given to us for us. Nothing happens to us; everything happens for us. Um, um, so, so um, I'm just trying to recall a uh, a quote. Um, that a, a colleague of mine uh, shared, which was very, which is very profound. Um, just a moment. Okay, I'll come back to me soon, hopefully. Um, so everything that, ha that, that happens in our life happens for us. 
and and I'd be very careful about saying this to someone, but I'm speaking just to an open forum, so I'm giving perspective. Sometimes crisis is the moment that we can learn things that we will never learn otherwise. So sometimes in that moment when we are forced in this crisis and we just have to face the music, as they say, we begin to realize how our self-worth was coming from this external status. And we begin to realize, you know what, I can walk in and you know what, my friends still come over to me and people still respect me. And this is the same shame thing where we start breaking down the walls of shame and realizing actually that's not where my value comes from and we become more powerful people. So sometimes that itself is the opportunity for us to take on a, a, a deeper perspective. Is it gonna be easy? No. Is it gonna be pleasant? No. Does anyone want the situation? No. But if Hashem puts us in that situation, how can we make the best of it? We can painfully embrace it and we can find a completely different person on the other side of it. Amazing, okay. Um... Kaisar, are you available? Yeah, yeah, I am. I, the floor I, is yours. I thought I'd boost his ego. First of all, just to show you, we have the book here. My roommate bought it. I'm oh, gonna, fantastic. I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I, I plan to donate it to our the live Stern College Library where I work. So just, you know, just, I'm sorry. I might have missed it. I'm sorry if I repeat myself because I missed a little bit. I had some phone calls. But I was just wondering, you know, when you Talk about, you know, you know, not caring what people think. I mean, you can get, you know, I know you get into the realm of narcissism or psychopath, psychopathy, you know, pronouncing it correctly, where, you know, the, the, there's a, you know, an absence of guilt or absence of shame. Like, how do you determine what's a healthy, you know, a, you know, a healthy uh, sort of shame, a healthy guilt? Because, you know, sometimes you, you, you know what I, rely on totally on the opinions of other people the people around you but at the same time you still need maybe as a measure of a reality check or a measure of normality or something that you know you, know, you can do something and, and not you know can say the wrong some things can be trivial but i think it's within the social a certain social context you know and so i i'm just wondering what at what point do you like where do you have like well on the, there's obviously the torah but on the personal level i mean is there like a like any kind of framework that you know you determine who what you know who's uh what's healthy behavior not strange behavior not you know you know so somebody's really doing something appropriate should they feel i mean they, great they, question you're asking a great question Chayisar, and, and and it's going it's going to either um i'm gonna i'm going to comment which will either be a controversial comment or i'll be well accepted um but either way i'll be i'll serve the show well so, um, um, you know, I'm going to give definition to guilt and shame, okay? Because before I make the comment, I want to give definition to the, the way I'm using these words. Guilt is when I identify with the wrongdoing. So I feel guilty. I am a bad person because I did this. Shame is the exact same thing. I am a bad person. I feel ashamed because how could I have done this? That means that I am bad. Shame and guilt are both destructive. As far as Yiddishkeit is concerned, and here's the big statement, as far as Yiddishkeit is concerned, guilt should not exist. I know that, that in Judaism we say that Jewish mothers are the queens of guilt, of Jewish guilt, right? But guilt is actually destructive. We should feel sad when we do something wrong. We should feel bad that we slipped 
and we did something wrong. But we should never identify with the wrongdoing because that never defines us. And I'm telling, and I'm going to tell you why I'm saying that guilt and shame are bad. They're wrong. Okay. And I'm, this is not my own. This is uh, written in the, in in the, in the, uh, Tanya Kadisha and the Holy Book of Tanya. Um, but um, this is the reason. But I want to explain it in very clear terms. Um, when we I always use this example because I think it's very relatable. When we go at 11 o'clock at night, which is the four minutes away, and we open up the cookie jar and we take out a chocolate chip cookie and we eat, right? We eat a cookie, right? And what do we do? We say, why did I just do that in our heads, right? I shouldn't be eating that. What do we do right after that? We eat another cookie because the more bad we feel about the first cookie, the quicker we will eat another cookie. Why? We have just weakened our entire self-worth. We don't have the fight to fight. We don't have the strength because the other side, weak self-worth is weak, is weakness, right? High self-worth, our strength comes out. Two sides of the same coin. So um, therefore, guilt is not holy. Guilt is destructive. It is the main tool of the evil inclination. That's what guilt is. Shame is the main tool of the evil inclination. And so we have to learn. And I will tell you that it is possible to learn slowly and incrementally to feel less and less guilt, even when there's another person that throws it in your face. Because you begin to differentiate between what you did wrong and acknowledging and taking responsibility for what you did wrong, but not personalizing it. I'm not going to feel like I'm low because I did something wrong. I was designed with an evil inclination and I slip up. I do, I own up to that, and I'm gonna work hard not to do it again. But I'm not gonna sit here and feel bad for the day that I did it, because that's just gonna to lead to more wrongdoing. Okay. Um, I think we should take it now to the, the people out there who are mechanchem. Oh. Sitting, sitting in a classroom, whatever age they are. The question they sent in um, was a mechanch who was in the classroom. You mentioned before that they really have to start with themselves first, but I don't think he can wait. He's actually sitting in the classroom and you have A's, B's and C's. And the C boy knows exactly where he is and the, the Rebbe wants to make him feel good. He wants to make sure that he doesn't lose that uh, whatever he is doing. So how does a Rebbe in a classroom instill in their students the self-worth? Great question, great question. I'm a mechanich of adults, not of children. I have two brothers who are mechanchim. We have a healthy dose of uh, debates about chinuch. <laughs> it's always good to talk about a subject you're not an expert on and to have opinions. But, uh, but I, I want to say this. Um, it's uh, being a, a, a rebbe or a teacher is not different than being a, a parent in this context. And that is that we can act loving to our students. We can act, we can behave with um, um, acceptance to our students. But that doesn't cut it because kids are more connected to the truth than anyone else. When we embody, which is a lifelong task, but when, we, when some of us are more natural at it than others, but when we can embody the being a being of self, of acceptance, so that when other people come into our orbit, whoever they may be, we are not judgmental. 
we accept them as they are, and we understand that everyone struggles and that everyone has strong points and weak points, that resonates, that is felt by the other person. There is no such thing as a person not feeling that. It's a human, it's that wireless connection that goes on between one person and another person. And we all know this from people that we meet. So we need to develop ourselves to become loving and accepting individuals. And I'm going to add, and it's a point you said, you said before, um, which you emphasize a lot, which is a hundred and fundamental. The reason why it says, love your fellow as yourself is because you will only love another person as much as you love yourself. You will only accept another person as much as you accept yourself. If you're judgmental and harsh on yourself because you think you're being holy by doing that, then you will be judgmental and harsh on others. And if you've learned the, the if, you, if you're, if you're, if you're sh uh, sharp enough to have come up with sophisticated ways to hide it, just know that the only person you're hiding it from is yourself because everyone else still feels the judgment. There is no hiding our being. The energy that emanates from, from us is felt by everyone. And that shouldn't be a source of criticism on ourselves as well, of saying, you know, I don't have that energy. Most people don't have that energy. Hardly anyone has that energy. The question is only, is only whether I am going to choose to be that for the world around me. And those are the special people in our lives. And it's not going to happen, you know, in a year. It's not going to happen in five years. And we're going to, we're, we're, we will excel as we move along. So I would say the greatest gift that a, that a Rebbe and a parent can give to our children is to learn we can discipline, but with acceptance. And, and I will say this also. Uh, I don't know. I never, uh, I can't recall from my entire childhood and education in yeshiva and the many hours I spent under Mechanchem, ever experiencing discipline with love. I, I just don't, can't recall such an, as, every time it comes with anger. And that means, that means that, the, and I'm not saying this critically. I'm not saying, because I do the same, I, I've done the same thing many, many, many times. I'm not saying this critically. I'm just saying this is our challenge. And, and, and because, because when we do it with anger, what we're doing is we're telling the person, I don't like you. In that moment, at least, we're telling them, we are personalizing the punishment. When we can discipline someone purely for what they've done wrong, you know, there's a there's a beautiful story, um, which is in um, the 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 Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, wrote a beautiful book called Sefer Hazachrenus. If you just want to boost your 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 amuna, um, your your faith in God, you should buy. It's called in English. It's called the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Memoirs. It, this book, by the way, has touched me. I read it when I was 15 years old. I picked it up and went to my sukkah and read it. It touched me so, so deeply. It's all stories, unbelievable stories. And one of the stories in there, I, I, I heard from a rabbi who experienced the exact same story in modern day times. I'm going to tell, give you the modern version. It's exact, pretty much the same story. Um, this is a, a, a Rabbi Eisenman, who many people know. He writes in the Mishpacha, I think, or one of the, one of the newspapers every single week. He's a rabbi in Pesach, um, who's very aligned with... Uh, the types of subjects discussed on this, uh, which is uh, on, on this show, which is really why I appreciate him. And he shared that when he was in sixth grade, he once did something and his Rebbe, he said, my Rebbe had a red beard. He described him. He didn't say his name, although this is a big compliment to him. This was pre, uh, you know, it, it was still when in the good old days when, uh, you know, children were hit in school when they did something wrong. And he said, my Rebbe came over to me. He said, you did this and this wrong. And he spanked me. 
He said, after he hit me, I looked up and my, I saw my Rebbe turned around. I looked at him and I saw that he was crying. Unbelievable. You know what it means to have that experience. I envy him for having gotten, uh, gotten a spanking from a rabbi who actually cried after he hit him. It's so moving to me because he truly, truly hit the boy for the boy. That's such a loving act of discipline. It's rare for a person to experience that. So we don't even have the experience of, of acceptance. So we have to learn to be that. And this goes back to the question that SD asked. We have to learn to be that, which is not easy, but we have to dedicate ourselves to it. And then we give our children and everyone who meets us a gift that every single human being is, is yearning for. Every single one of us is seeking a person who will accept us as we are. I think that that is a universal need that every single one of us has. And it's very hard to find. But you know what? Instead of trying to wait for the person to show up for us, why don't we become that person for others? Uh, where do we start? Where <laughs> so do we self-acceptance? Self-acceptance, with 100%, 100%. And self-acceptance is a practice. So with a lot of the things, you keep on going back to this, uh, where we start, and I'm, I'm going to say, you start with the book. You start with the exercises in the book. The reason why I'm saying it is this. We need to have, and this is the way I've done it, from, I, and I do it for myself. We need to have something concrete we can do every day that's taking us in the right direction. So we have to say, I'm going to look at the events that occurred to me in this, during this day, and I'm going to take one of them and find out where I was being dishonest or hiding from the real reason why you know, I said or felt the way that I did. And we start getting more in touch with what is really going on, where I realized that the way I responded to a certain person was all defensive. And as we become more aware of that, we slowly, slowly chip away and become more authentic and more real. And we become that person. That's the way to do it. it not, we must have exercises and we must be committed to doing them every single day. Hey, Reverend okay. Weiss, I'm sorry for cutting you off short. I just have a lot more questions. People are texting a lot. I want to try to cover more ground if that's okay with Wait, you. Wait, Oshie, I'm just going to throw in a small exercise. I'm just, going to throw in, I'm just going to throw in a small exercise here. Go for it. Effective listening. If, if, with a child in class or whatever it is, before you do anything, you can call over the child and listen to what the child has to say. Or anybody else. Listen without saying anything. And it's hard, but just listen. And then say, I hear, walk away, you come back, you'll see what you have, what you have to do. But the, the, just to be able to sit and listen without coming up with any solutions, without saying one word, just listen. You might have to bite your, bite your lips like we discussed last week, mm -hmm. because while you hear what's going on in your mind, it's like mind boggling, but you listen to the other person so the other person can feel that somebody Heard him. And again, no facial expressions either. Just listen. Beautiful. Okay, so this is somebody texted a question. I want to read it. And I have a lot more questions here that came in. So let's let's put the pace on it. Anybody has a question live, please, is the way to go. So we can get there. Everyone, Weinstein, you ready? I'm ready. If a question, if a person knows ultimately that they have worth, but constantly fails at life, jobs, midos, relationships, parenting, or whatever, how do they keep that self-worth with each failure? Additionally, if you are surrounded by people that are constantly knocking you, how do you keep self-worth when you're constantly being pointed out to failures? Great question. You know, when I just, when I heard the first question, my response was going to be surround yourself with people who support you. 
<laughs> and <laughs> but um, a great question. The, the, so part part of it is perspective, which is which is hard. Okay, perspective One is second, hard. Sorry, everyone. I forgot. I wanted to do this. A lot of people text me. Um, the name of the book. It's called. It's it's within you. Um, I bought on Amazon. Just type in it's within That's you. Right. Weinstein, you could buy it. Um, that's how you get it. Just, I got like 10 texts. So I just wanted to clarify. Sorry, continue. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, um, so what, um, the first thing is perspective. So something I also uh, repeat often because I need to hear it often. You know, never mind everyone else. Um, we work in the efforts department. We don't work in the results department. Results are entirely not in our hands. One of the great mistakes that we make as human beings is that because we put forth an effort and we see a result, we attach the two. We think that the effort created the result. Effort never creates results. We put forth the effort and through the blessing of HaKadosh Baruch our result comes out. That's very important. So when we, stop, when we truly step into that true, genuine trust and belief, then, and it's, again, it's not absolute, but as we do that more and more, then we get less affected by the results because we accept that I'm being guided by a Baruch Hu for whatever reason. Now, when someone has repeated failures, that is, that's, that could be debilitating. That's, that can be very, very difficult. So the challenge is difficult. And I would say that it's a compliment. Um, and maybe this is not the best thing to say, but hopefully you're in the position to hear this, that it's a compliment to you because, you know, the Abishter is, is saying that you have a lot in you, you can stand up to this. Again, and I will say to the second part of the question, it's vitally important that you surround yourself with people who support you. So if you're surrounded by people who don't support you, some of those people you, you may not be able to trade in, if you will, right? They may be your immediate family and they are who they are. Um, but you know, you also learn whose voices you, you take in internally and whose voices you don't. And that's a hard thing as well. That's a hard thing as well. But it would be vitally important, and I'm going to go right back to this. It's vitally important to get a mashpia, a a a a a, a rav, a rashishiva, a a coach, a mentor, someone who you can sit down with on an ongoing, repeated basis, so that you can air these things out with. That can be enormous. It could be a therapist. You know, whoever it is, it's enormous. It's 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 enormous when you can do that. Great answer. Really, really sharp answer. Okay, let's go into a little bit of a different angle. Um, it's a good question. What do I do now? I'm 50 years old. I never felt any self-worth in my life. Always pleasing others to start working on self-worth. It means that there are certain people, I know people like this, they're, they, they just, anybody, somebody out, can you draw me? They really can't. They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're such schmatas, whether because they didn't have the proper love as a kid or they're just that, that type of personality. They, they're always the schmata or the martyr, you know, that wife that just does everything. And then... Um, now they're 50 years old and they want to start building up some yeshus, some, you know, self-worth. So how do you help them? What's the first step? The first step is somebody who's always been, you know? Yeah. Um, look, you know, one, one, one big principle in life, the only person you can change is yourself. So you can't change other people. You can influence other people. You can't change other people. So we often, and very often, by the way, this is a major mistake that we make and that we, we, we put a tremendous focus on trying to get other people to do. And actually when our worth, our worthiness comes from without, we're trying to change that all the time. And the reality is that it's completely frustrating because we cannot change another person. We can force other people to do things, but we can't actually change them as who they are. Who can change them as who they are themselves? 
some people, um, partially nature, partially nurture, they've decided, and also they may be in a position which is much harder than the average person. They've just accepted their, their role in life as being, as, uh, as, as uh, Usher said, the shmata, you know? That's, that's just the role that they've taken on in life and they're not moving from it. And by the way, there's tremendous convenience to that. There's a reason why um, um, the Jewish people did not want to leave or wanted to go back to Mitzrayim. They wanted to go back to Egypt. It's easier to, to, for someone to be supplying you with few food, even though you're, having, you're working very hard. You don't have to make any decisions. There's no big weight on your head. It's much harder to run your own company. You know, where you have major decisions, things can fall and then it, it, the collapse is on you. The risks are much greater. So slavery has its benefits, but overall it's a disaster. So how can we, how can we help enough, that other person? Number one is we should not have high expectations. The truth is we shouldn't have expectations from people, period. But we shouldn't have expectations because we cannot, we don't control it. What we can do is the very same thing. If we are a person of acceptance and love, that is the greatest thing we can do to possibly get them to take a little step forward and make some progress. It's a lot of this, I mean, almost everything has to do with who we are for other people, not what we're going to get other people to do. And this is a key shift in most people's thinking. So what does a person do um, if he has to please his boss? Wouldn't it make sense? He works for his boss. He wants to please his boss. He wants his boss to think that he's one of the greatest guys in his company. Would you advise him not to please his boss? <laughs> um, number, one, number one, you said, what if a person has to? So first, let's change that to what if a person wants to? No one has to do anything. That's that's all uh, right. So that's a big mistake we make very often. We don't have to do anything. You can get another job. It's very important. It's a very, very important point. Very easily um, said. It's very easily said. <laughs> it's, it's very easily said. But I'm, I'm not talking. I'm not just shooting it out. I'm talking from personal experience. Okay. Um, it's very, very important for us to know that no one is tying us down to a certain place. I know it's hard because Parnassa livelihood is very fearful. Right. But if someone wants to live freely, and I, and I, want, to, I want to explain why this is not an arrogant thing. I want to live freely. It's vital for our service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for us to be free of other things and other people. If we want, because otherwise they will be the prominent force in our life. And we will believe that our money comes from them, which is the reason why we feel that I need to please them. It's all intertwined. And we have to have the courage to, to, to face the world truthfully. Truthfully means the way we know it to be true. And that's, what, that's the way Yiddish guy teaches it to us. So we have to realize our pronouncement doesn't come from anybody. So um, now that doesn't mean, of course, we should have tremendous gratitude to a person who employs us. We owe tremendous gratitude to a person who employs us. But do we have to go out of our way to please them? Well, let's analyze this for a minute. When someone goes out of the way to please you, how do you feel? Right? You great. feel what? Feel great. Well, actually, you feel power over them. I'm not sure that makes you feel great. I think it makes it makes you feel actually arrogant. Not you. I mean, it makes us feel arrogant because we feel like we have power over another person. Because sadly, the other person is actually behaving in a manner as if they are beholden to us. We shouldn't give tribute to people just for tribute. We should pay proper respect 
to an employer who employs us, who deserves respect for employing us. But we shouldn't go, we shouldn't pay tribute to them. This goes to the very, very point we're talking about. That is the greatest sign of a lack of self-worth. Self-worth is every single one of us has value. No one owns us, right? Again, that doesn't call for at any time, arrogance would be behaving disrespectfully, right? When we're in touch with what's true reality, we give proper respect, but we don't patronize. And patronizing is actually a very unhealthy thing to do. I know it's, uh, I'm not saying, uh, so, you know, you have, we have to know the cultures we live in and we have to know where a culture has a certain kind of protocol. So we follow that protocol because that's protocol of the culture, but to go beyond that really is unhealthy for everyone. It creates a very, un, um, a very uncomfortable imbalance in the relationship. Probably depends in the, the in, it probably depends uh, what kind of boss he has, if he has a healthy self-worth himself. Exactly so. And I believe, I believe if it's a healthy boss, they look up to their, they, they appreciate someone who can say, I, I, you gave me the project to do, let me finish that first, and then I'll take the next project. Instead of saying, sure, 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 all day, at the end of the day, things are not getting done. This is true. I'm going to make one other point, though. This is a very important point. Um, we all know that when someone uh, comes, uh, blows a fuse, and, and they're very angry, and they start screaming at us, and we respond to them on an even level. We don't, we, don't, we don't rise up to their decibel level, right? But we speak calmly. What that does is it automatically brings them down. Even if they're still yelling, they're gonna yell at a, at a lower tone, which is an amazing thing to observe. And the reason why it's an amazing thing to observe is to realize that the being that we are at any given moment influences the environment around us and influences the people around us automatically. So it's very important to also realize that as we become healthier people, the unhealthiness around us actually begins to lower because people respond to us. We become a nucleus of health and people respond to us, begin to respond to us on a healthier level. And, and, and all I can say is this, all I can say is this, that if you go down this journey, and I'm sure, I'm sure we're probably all on this journey already, right? As we go down this journey more and more, we begin to experience the truth of this and how profound it is. I mean, we're shocked. I've been shocked sometimes to see how behaving a certain way changed. I was expecting, you know, some crazy response and it, it brings everything to a stable place. It, and it's a gift that we give to the, to, to the environment around us. So, so sometimes even though, you know, maybe the boss is unhealthy or whatever the context is, are behaving properly, they may be frustrated with it in the beginning, but it actually brings them to a healthier place. Bushy, I'm mute. Oh. Ashi, we have a we have a question. I should ask my question now. Ah, yeah. All right. So, how do you say no to people when you're such a giving person and you're always you always want to be on the giving end? And even when you're when it's hard, you'll make it happen and you're you'll just say yes. You could even go out of your way sometimes, and it's hard to say no. Um, and when you always want to, we always want to say yes, and especially if you're 
you're like a people pleaser. You're, you just want people to be happy and you'll do anything for anyone. And like, you know, no is never an answer for you. Even if like you want to, you want to say no, or it's not a good time. doesn't work out. You just somehow make it work, make it happen and just do good to people. Like, and sometimes it's good. It's good to be, it's good to say no. And you know, not always. And then like, you don't know how to be a taker too. Cause like you always just want to give, but then you have to learn also how to take. Yeah. Is this the Shmata question? <laughs> so, so whoever's asking the question, I'm just going to assume for the sake of my response that you're the one who's the big giver. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's correct. Okay. Fantastic. So, so the first thing I want to tell you is that you're, you're a big blessing to the world. That's the first thing I want to tell you. You're a big <laughs> blessing to the world. And I'm going to assume that you know that because you probably get that from the people around you. Um, you know, people who, who just, who give abundantly are such a blessing and you bring such a happiness and, um, and, and, and me, um, also you raise the spirits of so many people. So overall, that's a good problem to have. In other words, from the problems in the world, it's from the better problems to have. So, so <laughs> I just want to say that. But but you are but you are um, you are correct in trying to create balance. You are correct in trying to create balance. Um, so it's a very hard thing to do, because um, I know I know many people who are. Um, I just happen to be uh, to know some a good number of people who are are unbelievable givers. Um, so I know exactly what you're talking about, and I know the enormous blessing of it. And I also know that if that's your nature, it's very hard to limit. So I, I, I would just say this, that um, sometimes when you think before, um, if, you're, if, you, if you can prevent yourself from the knee-jerk reaction of saying yes right away, which a lot of givers just can't even hold themselves back from saying yes right away, but if you can hold yourself back for a moment and you can just uh, practice assessing whether this giving is simply to please them or it's truly to their benefit, because sometimes giving another person is not beneficial to them. For example, we know that giving our children too often is, can spoil them terribly. So as just one very simple example. So to question number one, whether it's, it's, it's really benefiting them. And number two, is, are other people being hurt by the fact that you're spending time giving them? Who are you saying, as, as, as Coach Menachem said earlier, who are you saying no to in order to give this yes? And sometimes becoming aware of that can give us the strength to create a limit, even though creating limits is not very easy for us. Does that, I hope, I hope yeah, that makes sense. It does make sense. Like sometimes I'll suffer later because like I'll give it my all till the last moment and then comes, let's say, take Friday night, I'm exhausted. Shabbos meal, we should all be up and not, you know, crash down. Like, so then it's worth maybe, you know, say like not working till the last minute and going out there to every person to make them happy and whatever it is and then and then all of a sudden what happens to you so like it could be a burnout to me but then at the same time I'll like fight for it and then you know I got this like but really like yeah that's true you have to just create the balance and know how to where the boundaries come in and like it's okay to say no sometimes and don't feel bad to say no you know yes so so um, I'm just going to say this I don't want to encourage your giving too much because you because you don't have an issue giving but I just want to say the fact that you suffer from the fact that you did a favor for another Jew is one of the holiest things you can do in this world. In fact the Balshamtov said that a neshama comes down to this world for 60 or 70 years just to do a favor for another for another yid. So so um, the suffering part is not but I get what you're saying sometimes your family I would say more importantly that your family's 
Shabbos experience can be affected and, and, and that can have a much greater impact. So, so number one is try and create within yourself a, an understanding of the balance that's going on in the particular decision. And I think also if you can find someone close to you who can also help guide you, you see, I, I'm gonna give, here's another very, very valuable um, point to help. Very often in the moment, we cannot assess the situation properly. No, there's, there, there's too much invested in the moment for us to be able to assess the, the situation properly. It's very valuable to assess the situation after it happened, even though there's nothing you can do about it. But the reason why is because you begin to develop perspective and in the future, you become a much better decision maker. So that would be a very good thing to do. You do need to have with this thing, you, with, with this issue, you do need to have a very good uh, rub or guy, uh, um, some mentor to help you with making the right decision because giving is very powerful, but giving can also be uh, hurtful at certain times. So you wanna make sure that you're, you have the right hashkafa, the right perspective in when to give, when not to give. And the, the other point I wanted to say about taking is a very, very important point because when we are unable to take, that is, a, that is a very unhealthy not to be able to take. And in some way it's cruel not to take, I just wanted to say, because you know when we take, has, when we, we love giving, we love giving. We feel good giving. Um, it, it, why would we deny another person of the opportunity to have that satisfaction of giving? It's actually, you know, the, the Gemara says that more than the, the calf wants to uh, suck from, 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 from its mother, the cow, the cow wants to nurse its calf, right? The giver, uh, people want to give, people have a need to give. The, world's, the, the world thrives on givers, on people being able to give, denying someone the ability to give really is—I'll, you know—I'll say it comes from an unhealthy side of us. It comes in some in some respect from our from our arrogance. And I learned this once because uh, a gentleman and I in, in our community once knocked on our door. Um, they actually had, um, they used to, they, they they would uh, they they ate many Shabbos meals in our home, and they once knocked on the door and he gave me an envelope, right? It was a check, right? And I said it's unnecessary, you know, you don't need to. Right, I was being polite, but he said, and he, I, I'll never forget this. He said, "You know how to give; you need to know how to take as well." And he was 100% correct, and I never forget that. I was giving. He said, "He was saying, I come, and I take from you, but you won't take from me." That's really what he was saying. He was saying, "I come, and I permit you to give me, and you enjoy that so much, and I enjoy it so much. Why won't you permit me to do the same?" So, you know, developing that perspective can sometimes help that simply knowing that sometimes taking is a tremendous act of giving. I hope that was helpful. I'll just throw in a, a very good idea for you to continue giving is to take off a little bit of your day, lock off some time from your calendar and take care of yourself so you'll be able to continue giving more. Because eventually giving, 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 you, like you said, you get burnt out. So if you want to continue giving, spend some time with doing self-care so that you can get up and continue giving with a better feeling. And saying yes to that inner child inside of you that sometimes says, I need. You say, okay, I'll take care of you too. So go take care of yourself, not too much, a little bit. And uh, yeah, that might, might be also uh, hard just to say, I deserve, I also deserve, can be hard.
Okay, Rabbi Weinstein, we have a lot more questions. People want to ask live. I want to try to put, a, sorry not to pressure you, I want to put a little pace on it. Uh, Cindy, you're on. Hi, so I wanted to know about the relationships between adult children and their parents. Sometimes that can be challenging. And how do you navigate that within the realms of Kibbutz of Aim? Appreciate the, the answer. Thank you. Okay, um, it's a little bit general. Um, are you asking from the parent side or the child side? No, from the child side. When it's when it's like in keeping with all of the the topics that you discussed. When it's sometimes challenging. When the parents sometimes go over over boundaries. When it's it's you're feeling like you're not being validated or not being treated in the way that you'd like to be treated. Um, yes. Sir. Um, the, so number one, it's extremely challenging, especially from the people closest to us. It's very, very challenging. So it, it's very hard. But if you want to be the hero, which you should want, which you should strive to be, I mean, the hero of character is what I mean, then um, what we strive for, okay, so I'm, I'm sharing the ideal, which is a lot of what I've been doing tonight. I'm sharing the ideal. Obviously, none of us are perfect. So we're, we could be distant from that ideal, but that's, where, that's our goal. The ideal is to be able to accept who our parents are. In, you know, in this case, to accept who our parents are, we, we know them quite well, so we really know who they are, to accept that, you know, they are doing their best based on their circumstances. Um, and, and this is what, this is the result, which may be unfortunate, but this is what it is. So we accept that. And so therefore, we become less and less triggered by it. The more we accept another person, the less what they say affects us. You know, I've had this experience as, 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 uh, as, 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 you know, leading a community, I've, uh, Hashem has given me uh, many, many gifts of individuals who, um, who were great exercise for me in developing my character. Um, so, um, you know, I've learned, and I, I've truly, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to repeat any stories here, but I've truly learned, um, you know, certain individuals who really pushed my buttons and I've learned to accept that they are a certain type of a personality, or they've been raised with certain challenges that they have, and therefore they may be uh, they may be upset, they may be bitter, whatever it may be. That's not for me to change. That's that's for them to change. And at their age, I don't I don't think that's going to change, right? Realistically speaking. So I accept them, and when I see them, I already am uh, prepared for what comes from them, and I smile. I simply smile. I don't. I, it doesn't trigger me anymore. So now that, that requires a lot, a lot of practice, especially with parents. Parents is a whole different story. It's much more difficult because it's, it, it's, it's our parents more than anyone else. Um, but that, is, that would be the ideal to strive for. Um, so it's a challenge and um, do your best with it. Do your best with it. Okay, Rabbi Weinstein, let's, let's, let's hop around one or two more questions because it's getting late. Um, I'm going to put two questions together. One person writes, how do I know if I have self-worth or not? Another question is, how do I find my self-worth? How do you know if you have self-worth or not? If you're asking that question, I say, just throw the question out. <laughs> God bless you. Baruch Hashem, if you're asking that question, don't look for problems, right? So someone who doesn't have self-worth or is struggling with self-worth, which is probably 98% of us, uh, we all know it. We all know it when we are we, we, when in different scenarios, when we get hurt, offended. All of these are signs of uh, lack of self-worth. And I use different examples. Well, anger is a lack is a, a sign that's a lack of self worth. Guilt is a sign that we have a lack of self worth, etc. But if you if if you don't have any of those issues, you're an it's, it's unbelievable. Don't don't look for problems. The second question was, what do I? How do I find my self worth? This is what we've been dis discussing. 
<laughs> so uh, you, you find your self-worth by, 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 uh, by slowly, extra, by, by having a concrete exercise of note, first observing and noticing how dependent I am on people and, and, and the world around me and the things around me to get my value. First, be able to become aware of that, simply aware of it, which itself is, a, we, 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 have, we are so defensive. We are so subjective. I can't even tell you, I'm amazed. Ever, I'm repeatedly amazed how I thought that I'm becoming less subjective and less defensive. And then there it is, I see myself again behaving that way. It's just almost endless. So um, we have to observe that and be aware of it. And, and once we're aware of it, then we can actually deal with it. And dealing with it is, like I just said before, we go back to events that already happened. We repeat in our minds what happened, how we responded, why we responded that way, and how that was an insecurity of ours that made us respond that way. And then slowly we begin to see a shift in ourselves. That's how we develop ourselves and our self-worth begins to increase. Before she's going to run to closing, could could you please take one thing? I know your book is full of these examples. Just one example so the audience can hear the difference of living from within or without. Just give us a, a story and show us the difference. You're driving home and you're going to be late. You're supposed to be home at 6 o'clock. You're going to be home at 6.30. So you call up your wife. I'm talking from a man's perspective. And what do you tell her? I'll be home in 15 minutes. So it would be worthwhile to ask yourself if this is, if you ever do this, why didn't you say I'll be home in 30 minutes? Why didn't you just say it the way it is? That's simply just because I'm late. Correct. So you're late. So tell your wife you're late and tell her how late you are. You don't know what the response is going to be. That's correct. But isn't it fear for us to show up and say the truth, right? And just be with what is going on. But what we're doing is we are defending ourselves in some way and protecting ourselves. Who are we thinking? Let me ask, who does that comment serve? Does it serve me or does it serve my wife? Who am I thinking about? It makes a little bit easier. It makes it a little bit easier because she's going to be upset. And you know you're going to be late. So you're going to say, you know, I'm coming home soon, 6.15 and whatever. Hopefully things work out. Yeah. So, so, so exactly so. So my point is this. And, and, and many people would say, no, you're being too technical. You should say 15 minutes and not 30 minutes. And here's my point. My point is that when we take on a pursuit, if we want to take on this pursuit of self-worth, we have to do it completely. And completely means that I am not living life that is oriented about protecting me. It's about protecting my wife. My wife may get, may get upset, but she knows what's going on. When, 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 what happens when, our, when, when, when they find out or they know that a time is never a time? What does that do for our marriage? Right? So showing up is always the safest way to go. When someone asks us, uh, wow, look at those shoes. How much do they cost? And we want to impress them. So we say they were $400 when they're really $100 shoes. Why are we saying $400? Deborah Weinstein, I got this sweater on sale. It was only $199, but the real price is $1,000. <laughs> yeah, I hear about that all the time. All the money I save when we go shopping. <laughs> only Jews save money when they spend it. 
right? Um, um, they, 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 they are, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, maybe another, another dishes, more- Washing the dishes. Oh, uh, you wanna hear that one? That's my classic, yeah. So, so, so the husband's washing the dishes and the, um, and the wife is drying them. And uh, she pass, he passes a dish that he just washed his wife and his wife says, oh, this is still dirty, right? What does the classic guy say? You don't like the way, the way I wash the dishes? You wash them, right? Classic, classic male, right? What is he doing? What did she say? She said the dish is dirty. In his mind, in his insecurity, he, he heard her say, you don't know how to wash dishes. So he blew up to an imaginary comment that his wife made, which she never made. She has no idea what's going on. What just happened? Why, why are you getting all upset? And he says, what do you mean? You don't like the way I wash dishes. She says, I, did I, I never said you. Yeah, I don't like the way you wash dishes. Of course you did. I said the dishes dirty. That's right. <laughs> that is living in your own reality and not in true reality. So when we revisit that, an event like that, and we ask ourselves, what actually happened? What did my wife really say? And here's what happens, by the way. I just want to, I want to be clear because I've been through this many times myself and I've been through this with many other people when I have this conversation. The person insists, of course she meant that. I know her, I'm married for 20 years. Of course she meant that. So I want to say that you still don't know what she meant. I promise you that you still don't know what she meant. We are so defensive that we insist the reality has to be the way we need it to be to protect ourselves. And so we have to go on the complete, from the defensive to offensive against ourselves and say, no, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever she says she meant is what she meant. And I am going to accept that. And that's accepting another person. And when we slowly do that, we stop responding to uh, what we perceive to be reality, which is our own defensiveness, and we begin to be responding to what's going on. So she says, this is dirty. Oh, let me wash it again. It's quite simple. The drama's gone, which makes for a boring life probably, but actually a very happy one. Weinstein, we got we to gotta do like, you know, self-worth in the marriage, you know, like a separate topic. <laughs> yeah, we do. Okay, I want to jump and ask one question. It's a person just texted me, but I want to ask it. I don't ask it to Coach Menachem if that's okay. I don't have a mentor coach. I'm afraid to take the emotional and financial risk. I don't easily trust anyone. Good therapists aren't affordable. Coach Menachem. Well, good things come with a risk. <laughs> and uh, I would say try it out and uh, try to stick to it because running away when things get uncomfortable is not going to help much. And another piece is discuss it with the mentor, coach, rabbi that you're talking to. Tell them this makes me feel uncomfortable. Be open, which can be hard, obviously, to be vulnerable, but that's what you're looking for. And like... Um, Rabbi Arya mentioned that the, the, the good feeling, the power, what we're looking for is on the other side of that. So stick to it and hopefully you see results. Okay, I want to go to closing, Rabbi Arya, if that's okay. You ready? Can I, can, I, can, I, can I add to Coach Menachem's comments there? This is like the presidential debate. I just mute you and that's it. <laughs> Two minutes. <laughs> Two minutes. I just want to, uh, to comment on this last uh, on, on this last question about coaching. Um, when someone needs to go to the doctor, is money is money ever an object? Should money ever be an object? Absolutely not. 
I'm very serious about this. I'm very, very serious about this. We must take our emotional and spiritual health seriously. And as far as the Torah is concerned, spiritual health is more important than physical health. So if we're aligned with that, that's even more true. Um, money should not be an object. I spend an enormous amount of money on a high-level coach. And I do that because the results I get from it are unbelievable. If you're tight on money, probably a good coach is going to be the first thing you need to start making money. Because what's holding you back is yourself. That happens to be the case. Um, number two, I want to say, I'm doing this all for Coach Menachem. <laughs> number two, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> no, I, I mean this very seriously. And number two, um, that, you know, one of the beauties, I happen to be a chassid and I have a Rebbe. And um, when the Rebbe says something, it's, 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 it's not questionable. It's not even a question. Okay, this is, um, people don't like this. They say you're venerating this man, you're making him holier than God, whatever it is, right? Why do you uh, follow him blindly? The reason why we don't, are unwilling to follow a tzaddik blindly is because of our own insecurity of letting go and knowing that there's someone there who knows better than me. The 50%, I'm gonna say 50%, I don't know the percentage, it depends on the coach. You know, look, um, we're concerned about whether the coach knows what they're doing, so get references, okay? Get references to find out if this coach is a good coach. But after you got the references, the, our insecurity, and I will tell you this is gonna happen, that after you have one or two sessions, you're gonna say, ah, I'm not sure if he's the right guy. I don't know if, this is a, you know if he knows what he's talking about. The reason why we do that is because we are beginning to face ourselves on a level that we never did before. And that is enormously uncomfortable. So what do we do? We find excuses. It's the same thing with a mashpia, right? People get a mashpia. In my, uh, in my culture, we call it a mashpia, a rav, whatever it is, and we ask for advice. The moment the advice starts becoming uncomfortable, or the moment I begin revealing to the Rav or the Mashpia things about myself that make me now uncomfortable, I, be, I, I have a deep desire to run and hide. And that's, the, that's stopping us. And I would say the best thing you can do for yourself is overcome that. The best thing you can do, dive in. Dive in because that's going to that's going to transform. It truly is going to transform your life experience, and more, far more importantly than your life experiences, it's going to give you the ability to live up to why Almighty God put you here on Earth. Okay, I just, and, want, to, and, and, I just want to read what somebody wrote. I just want to read what somebody wrote. Yeah. So, you know, people like to chime in, and I, you know, I, I like when people are interactive. I said, please tell the person that after years of looking for a proper therapist, not knowing how I'll be able to pay, I see Bishyata the Shmaya. You do, and Hashem takes care. It's amazing. It's really helped me tremendously. Beautiful, beautiful. That's beautiful. Fantastic. Before we go to closing, a lot of people are texting me. First of all, what's your website, Rabbi Weinstein? And people want to know how could they get in touch with you? Beginningwithin.com is the website. Um, and you can email me at info at beginningwithin.com. I'd love to hear from you. And I'll do my best to serve you as best as I can. Thank you. So again, I want to tell everybody, thank you for coming tonight. A big shkoyach to Rabbi Weinstein for coming and giving so much chizik. I was b'chizik. I feel like I'm worth a little bit more. So it's, so far it's worked. <laughs> but I, it's, it's been it's a very inspirational share and it's a, it's a very deep topic. And between you and me, until I read the book, I really the concept never even hit me. So I, I do I do advise everybody to get the book. It's within. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it anywhere. It's a powerful book, and um, I think you should come back again, Rabbi. We gotta we gotta tackle some more topics. We'll do I know it. we chose this one because it was easy for us because we could just. 
skim through your book and get the concept, but uh, we have more to talk about. Again, tonight's chair was learned Il Nishmas, uh, my boss from Magui Furniture, Schneer Hirsch. His name is Schneer Zalmanol Shalom Ben Gimpel Avram Hirsch. And someone should have a big aliyah in this chos. Remember, once coming in, being the the hundreds of people that were here tonight, the thousands of people that will hear it later. And it should be a military for his entire family as we were all pained by what happened last week. Um, again, next Sunday, we have an amazing program with Reb Moshe Meir Weiss. It's going to be, uh, Reb Moshe Weiss is a powerful speaker, very um, dynamic genius. And we're going to be talking about some of the things that are happening in today's current events, mixed it into Shalom Bayez. So it's going to be uh, all over the place. Um, everything was recorded tonight. It's going to be tomorrow on MenachemBernfeld.com. Any questions you have for him or for Rabbi Weinstein or anybody, please email Coach Menachem at Gmail. We forward it to, to, to Rabbi Weinstein or, you know, if you want to get a hold of him. Tonight's share is number 25, and it's all pre-recorded. If you want to hear it on the phone, we have a phone number. It's called, the number is 732-924-8464. Again, that's 732-924-8464. Again, thank you to all the advertising sponsors, the Lakewood Scoop, Chazak, Rabbi Aniv, COLOV, Mika Sofer, and a special thank you to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Summer for always promoting us digitally. Let's go to closing. Coach Menachem. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Weinstein. Again, obviously, this is a lot of work, and we heard tonight some ideas and everyone can go at the book to start the journey or to be able to continue on the journey knowing where we're going but i just i just want to mention a little bit about self-worth that we were all born clean without any beliefs any beliefs about ourselves and while we grow up we start looking around and picking up different beliefs about ourselves from from the world, from the external world, from the environment, experiences, whether it's parents, teachers, friends. And at a young age, we accept it. It looks real, it sounds real, and we take it in, whatever we heard about ourselves. But as we get older, we do need to start questioning our beliefs, and especially the beliefs about ourselves, the way you feel about yourself. And you're allowed to question I, this is how I believe. Is that true? Where does it come from? And again, we're not here to blame. We're not really looking from where it's coming from to blame. It's just to understand that it makes sense. You feel the way you feel, but that's not a reason that you should feel that, that way. And now as an adult, because you can question and understand it's coming from somewhere which you don't have to accept. And each of us, like we mentioned, we have our own mission in life and Hashem gave us all the tools we need to accomplish our mission. And uh, I'll say something that's hard to hear sometimes, like we mentioned before, that all the experiences and interactions that we go through, everything that we went through till now, obviously there's a lot of ups and downs, positive and negatives, all of that are part of the, of the tools that Hashem is giving us. Like Rabbi mentioned, Sometimes, again, if you're in a crisis, then you, have to, you might have to wait to understand it. But coming out of it on the other side, the, what you learn, what becomes of you, and life changes. And then you can look back and say it all started over there, and you can thank Hashem. But it's part, this is part of our journey. And part of what Hashem gives us, part of our tools. And instead of blaming our surroundings, blaming um, other things, if only I would have money, if only the job, if only that, we start looking inside of us. How do I feel, believe about myself? Because it's not too much, doesn't have much to do with our surroundings. 
it really is the journey, like we discussed, from within. And I give a bracha for everyone. In Hashem, we should, like I said, like you mentioned before, we're in the effort department. We don't have to see success. We don't have to get there. We're in the effort department, and by doing the effort on the right journey, Emet Hashem will get the, will will get further in life. Emet Hashem, thank you very much. And Mitch, tomorrow I will share a link of the book, and that's definitely a place where anybody can start their journey. Thank you. Right. Okay, Rabbi Ashi, you enjoy Geshmak of Art, right? So that's I'm, why I'm here. I do it right. on the arts. The, the big the big money and the arts. Beautiful. <laughs> we just read in the parasha last Shabbos. Actually, two Shabbos already. Um, the first story we have with Adam and Chava, with humanity, the very first story, they do what, the, what, what Akash Baruch told them not to do. They eat from the tree. What's, what do they do right after they do that? They go into hiding. The hiding. How does Akash Baruch respond? He does not respond to what they did wrong. He addresses their hiding. He says, Ayaka, where are you? And why does he say Ayaka? He's not, he, because he wants to give them, Rashi explains all of this. He wants to give them, he, he's opening up a conversation with them so that they, they went into hiding. They were too ashamed to come out of hiding. Why? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu designed us. He made us. He knows that we all have temptation. He, also, he knows that we all have desires. He implanted within us a part of us which attracts us to the very things he tells us to stay away from. See, he knows we're going to struggle. The struggle is not a problem. What's the problem? The problem is that when we actually struggle, we hide. So Hashem says, Ayeka. And what does, Avram say? What does Adam say? Adam says, uh, we're hiding because we realize that we are, we're unclothed. What's he doing? He's continuing to hide. So, so then Akash Baruch says, is it perhaps because you ate from the tree I told you not to eat? And what, is that? what does Adam say? The woman who you gave me caused me to eat. What's he doing? He's blaming. What are we doing when we're blaming? We continue to hide from responsibility for what we did. That's what we're doing. And it's only then that Akash Baruch says, ah, there needs to be a consequence to clean up the damage that's being done here because you're unwilling to rectify it yourself because you're too busy hiding. And we find something fascinating that after the, it spells out the punishments for a man's going to have to, by the by sweat of his brow, a woman labor and uh, the snake uh, eating dust, it says out of the blue, which really doesn't fit into the whole storyline, it says that Adam called um, Chava, his wife, Chava. Why did he call her Chava? Because she's the mother of all life. Can you imagine such a thing? Do you understand what Adam just did? It's the biggest lie in the world. Chava, his wife, is the one who, who plucked the fruit from the tree, whatever the fruit was, and ate from it. What was the punishment? God, Hashem said that when you eat from the tree, Mais Thomas, you are bringing death to the world. And Adam comes and calls his wife the mother of all life. Mother of all life? The mother of death. What's Adam doing? Doesn't make any sense. And not only that, we find something fascinating. The very next passage, Hashem rewards them. 
Hashem says, Hashem saw, saw that they were unclothed. So Hashem sold, uh, sold clothing, or kosnisar, vayalbishem. He clothed, he clothed them. Here's what happened. Adam demonstrated that he learned the lesson. And the lesson was that when a person slips, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And there's nothing to feel guilty about. And there's nothing to hide from. Hashem embraces and loves you just the same. Hashem only wants one thing. That you look at what you did and acknowledge that you did wrong and that you're going to do better next time. Never ever hide. Which is the has which remains the fundamental challenge of humanity until today. But Adam learned something else. When is high everything? Everything Hashem created, he created for his glory. Why did Hashem create the whole concept of the ability to hide? Because you hide someone else's wrongdoing. He knew that his wife now was going to have a legacy, that she brought death to the world. So he revealed a different aspect, that the truth of the matter is every single living person is a child of Chava. That's also true. See, he called her Chava, so it should hide her mistake and what she did. Hashem says, ah, now I see you understand. You understand that you're here to protect another and you're here to take responsibility for yourself. You're not here to take responsibility, make so, sure someone else is taking responsibility. You're here to make sure you take responsibility. Someone else, you give them, you create for someone else an environment where they feel safe and loved and accepted even though they did wrong so that then they themselves can come out of hiding. That's what you do for another person. But for yourself, you take responsibility. The second Hashem saw that, Hashem said, I am now going to cover up what both of you did wrong, and I'm going to give you clothing. So every single one of us struggles. I have no doubt because every single human being struggles with this, uh, this, uh, uh, this idea of hiding. And I, and I will tell you again, it's similar to what I said before. I find more and more deeply in my life how no matter how far I move along the spectrum, I discover deeper and deeper levels of myself hiding from reality. And it's just a continuous process of going deeper and deeper. And every step we take permits our power, our divine given power to blossom. So I wish everyone Hatzlacha, tremendous success. Don't be intimidated by the daunting task because if it was given to you by Almighty God, you have everything you need to take it on. Roenstein, beautiful. Thank you everybody for coming. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Moshe Mayor Weiss. Good night, everybody. Thank Benachem. you. Go to sleep, Benachem. Keshe <laughs> Take care. Thank you, thank you.